At this time, we're going to turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And the last and final section of the Olivet Discourse is where we find ourselves yet again. Last week, we looked at this passage once, and I did not feel like we covered everything that was worth covering. So here we'll look at it once more. In many ways, this passage is one of those passages that's used to talk about heaven and hell. Are you going to go to heaven or hell? A lot of people think that sums up what the Bible is about. That's what Christianity is about. How about you? Is that a good summary of Christianity? Are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to go to hell? Many times it's presented this way. I remember being a young boy growing up in church, hearing this sort of question. Let's imagine you've died suddenly. You're now standing before the throne of God, and it is the day of judgment. He asks you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? You're then supposed to respond with, what is your answer, your response And so I pose that question to you. What do you say? How do you answer God as he sits on his throne? Why should I let you into my heaven? And oftentimes what that question is trying to help someone think through is, are you going to answer, well, let me look at all that I did? Or am I going to look at all that God has done for me. And that's oftentimes what the question's trying to bring out. So if you've never heard that question before and you get popped quizzed by a pastor preacher like me, now you know what they're, what they're looking for. Is it about what you did or is it about what God did through Jesus Christ? And oftentimes that's how the gospel and the Bible is summarized. And there's many helpful things about that. But when we read Matthew chapter 25, King Jesus is sitting on his throne and he is separating the sheep from the goats, those to eternal life and those who will be in the eternal fire. And the reason those who go to hell in this passage, if you were to just read this passage, it would be by what they failed to do. So um, imagine that scene now. You're standing before the throne of God, and he asks you, why should I let you in? And it's because of what you failed to do that he might usher you in to eternal fire. That's at least one way to read it, and I want you to just read it afresh now and see if that's what you see. Follow along in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If the only Bible story you ever had, if the only Bible passage you ever read, if all you had in your Bible was Matthew 25, 31 to 46, you might think that the people who are going to heaven are those who love Jesus's weak and vulnerable brothers. And the people that are going to hell are those who have failed to love Jesus's weak and vulnerable brothers. If all you had was Romans chapter 2, the scripture reading that was just read, and you heard, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If all you had was one Bible verse, and it was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, you might think that your salvation was on the basis of your works. The deeds you have done, whether good or evil, because 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will receive what is due for what we have done in our bodies, whether good or evil. But friends, these are not the only passages of Scripture that we have. We have the entire book of Romans, the entire book of Matthew. We have two different letters to the Corinthians. And if you were to carefully read all of Matthew, all of Romans, and both letters of the Corinthians, would your first and immediate takeaway be God receives into heaven those who do good deeds. God punishes to hell those who fail to do those good deeds. Would that be your takeaway? And that is not a rhetorical question. I mean that. Would that be your takeaway? Homework assignment, if you've never read Romans or Matthew or Corinthians or all of them, this week, do it. Read all of Matthew, all of Romans, and First and Second Corinthians. Do it. Try it in as short amount of time as possible, one sitting if you want, maybe over the course of a few days. And at the end of that exercise, after reading it, think, what is the one takeaway What's the main idea? What's the big message? And is it that God is going to bring people into heaven who have done good things? And God is going to punish to hell those who have done bad things? 
I think the big idea is I would want to frame it for this message in Matthew 25. And one way to summarize Matthew and Romans and First and Second Corinthians is that God will judge us for what we do and what we do not do. But these things are good deeds. They are a part of the gift of the gospel. God will judge us for what we do and what we fail to do. But our good deeds and our righteousness before him is part of the gift of the gospel. Let me try and say it one other way. The good news of Jesus dying for your sins. Like why did Jesus have to die on the cross for your sins if you could just pay for it yourself with your good deeds? Why does Matthew 25 not just end the book of Matthew, but then there's 26, 27, and 28 where Jesus dies on a cross and takes the Lord's Supper and says, this is for the remission and the forgiveness of your sins. Why is that even in Matthew? Why is it not just in Matthew, but it's central to the whole book? If all you could do is just earn it yourself with your own good deeds, the good news of Jesus is that he has died for your sins so that you would be so transformed in your whole being inside and out that you would become people who love God and love his people, namely the church, his brothers and sisters, and especially those weak and vulnerable brothers and sisters. The good news is that Jesus has died for sins to transform new people who love God and his people. And I could quickly jump to Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 8, 9, and 10. And I could show you, oh, that's exactly what Paul is saying. But we're not studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Because even though that's as clear and as black and white as you are not saved by your works, it's a gift from God so that no one would boast, verse 10, so that then you would do good works. We're studying Matthew. We're not studying Ephesians. And I think if we look at chapter 25, we look at some of the details of what we've just read, there's sufficient evidence to realize that Matthew and Jesus are teaching that we are not saved by what we do or what we have failed to do. Evidence number one. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are not ultimately, at least, let me say that again. Matthew 24 and 25 are not first and foremost about heaven and hell, judgment that's coming at the end of the world. That's what we've been talking about for months now. Matthew 24 and 25 are all one speech, and they have an immediate first century context, and most people don't even give this a second. Don't even think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples right then and there. And last week's message, by the way, Last week's message was all me trying to preach what I think one of the main takeaways from Matthew 25 is in the context of the first century. And it wasn't, you're going to go to hell if you don't love Jesus' people. It was, Jesus so identifies with his church that when he sends out his disciples on mission for the next 40 years, he tells his disciples, I'm going to be with you and if anybody treats you poorly, there will be judgment coming. This is a different kind of feel when you think about it in the first century context. So, many of you are going to think, 
uh, no, sheep and goats is about end of the world. It's about judgment at the end of all things. Maybe your earlier sermons were okay, but this one, Phil, not tracking. The reason you wouldn't be tracking with this concept is because you fail to understand the genre, the context, and seeing that this is a prophetic, apocalyptic piece of writing. It's, it's a speech from Jesus where he's giving you a prophecy about what's about to happen, and then it's a prophecy that has double, triple fulfillments. Let me explain it this way. Jesus is like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied that one day there'd be a new covenant coming for Israel, and he specifically and explicitly spoke about that as entrance into a physical, historical land. Restoration from exile was what he's talking about when he was using this new covenant language. In other words, Jeremiah was prophesizing first and foremost about something that would happen in the lifetime of his hearers. And so when he said, I will bring my people back from captivity and they will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the seed of man will be with the seed of beasts. And the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He was talking about return from Babylon, from exile, back to their land. First and foremost, that's what he was talking about. But... The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament uses the very same passage and says, this is about Jesus. Or as theologians say, the prophetic word has more than one fulfillment, a double fulfillment. Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the restoration from exile, but that's not all. A double fulfillment means it's like you had a a meal and then you had leftovers. Jesus is making a prediction in Matthew 24 and 25, and there's leftovers. There's more than just what he's saying to his first century disciples. Not less, but more. Isaiah says that in the last days there will be a mountain in the house of the Lord, and it will become a chief mountain, and all the nations of the earth will come streaming to this mountain, and they will beat down their swords and make them into plowshares. They will take their spears, and they will turn them into pruning hooks. Beautiful. Wonderful poetry. Do you guys know what that means? What's a spear? What's a sword? A weapon. What do you use that for? Killing. And what are they going to take that weapon of killing and turn it into? A gardening instrument. What a beautiful image that all the swords and spears are going to be turned into something that's going to bring and cultivate life. The nations are going to come and they're going to bow down at at the, the mountain of Israel and they will start bringing their swords and their spears and they're going to say, we're no more going to wage war and violence and evil. We're going to help cultivate the land. And sure enough, when Israel returned from exile, that prophecy was fulfilled in their lifetime. But Isaiah talks about not just that prophecy, but there's leftovers. There's a sense to which That's still being fulfilled now as Jesus is taking criminals and murderers and and rapists and abusers and he is turning their swords and their spears into plowshares, going from destroying life to saving life. Or when Isaiah talks about King David and the government being upon his shoulders and his peace will increase and his reign and rule and justice will have no end. He's talking about the birth of Jesus, and it was fulfilled when Jesus was born. And and we quote those prophecies of Isaiah chapter 9 around Christmas season, and rightly so, but there's a sense to which there's leftovers. Jesus' 
government is upon his shoulders, but of the peace and reign and rule, there's still more to come. And this is the way I have been reading Matthew 24 and 25 for the last several weeks. First fulfillment, and there's more. This is the way I think you should read your Bible. It's the way you should look at history. Pay attention to reoccurring patterns. The Bible doesn't just say there was an exodus in Egypt, period, history. That's all you need to know. There was an exodus in history. No, there are multiple exoduses. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Luke's gospel says that he is there with Elijah and Moses, and they're discussing his upcoming exodus. In other words, Jesus' death on a cross is another exodus. It's another saving people out of bondage and slavery, setting the captives free. There was one exodus, but there will be another exodus. And friends, there will be yet another exodus when God sets all of our world free from the tyranny of slavery. So this is the way to read the Bible. This is the way to read history. It shows that God is consistent in the way he works. It's like we can read through the Bible and through history God's habits and what he does in the world so that way we can broadly and generally, not very specifically most of the time, more just broadly and generally understand this is what God does. So in Matthew 24 and 25, there is a double fulfillment. When you read verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate the nations like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is nothing different than what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, the ascension of Jesus from earth to heaven, sitting on the right hand of the Father and judging the nations. And when the temple is destroyed, that, was, that is when they will realize, oh, his predictions came true. And the appearing of the righteousness of God has been made clear. And there's a sense to which that son of man has a reoccurring pattern and theme. There's, there's leftovers. There's more to come. The judgment that he is talking about is between sheep and goats, God's people, followers of Jesus, and goats, the nations, the first century Romans and Jews who mistreat the followers of Christ. And they will be separated during their lifetime. In fact, if you read back in Matthew 16, he says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in his glory, with his Father, and then he will repay each person to what they have done. Truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it's been a while, but since we went in Matthew 16 and I preached that passage, I said, this is talking about Daniel 7. So Matthew 16 says that the Son of Man is going to come and there are people who are standing in Jesus' presence that will not taste death until the, the kingdom of God is, is established and comes. That's the first fulfillment. But as we've been saying, there's more to this picture. The language is about eternal life and eternal fire. So therefore, in one sense, this passage is not about you going to heaven or hell. It's first and foremost about what's going to happen in AD 70 when the temple's destroyed. But in another sense, this is all about heaven and hell. The destruction of the temple is a foreshadowing picture of the end of all things. When you see the sheep and the goats separated, then you understand 
the understa- then you have the understanding to, to predict and understand what God is going to do in the future. And this is why last week's message should hopefully make sense. Consider the gift of being identified with Jesus. That's what he's saying to his first century disciples. So now, 21st century disciples, consider the gift of being associated with Jesus when there is a future separation between sheep and goats. And that's what I think you should take home. That should be your main kind of sweet balm to the weary soul. But there's one more evidence that I want to point out. Second evidence. The first evidence is that this passage is about double fulfillment. The second evidence that you should not read this passage as a, well, if you do good enough, then God will let you into heaven. Or if you don't love his followers, then you will be burning in hell forever. Notice the way Jesus tells the story. And he says, then the righteous will answer. This is verse 37. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then if you drop down in verse 41, He's now talking to those on the left, those who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42, he says he was hungry and and he had no food to eat and no drink. And they say in verse 44, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? What is it that both the sheep and the goats have in common? They weren't calculating They weren't trying to think, okay, so I've done this many good deeds, and I've done this many bad deeds. Oh, I need to do a little bit more good deeds. Last night, I was really bad, so I should go to church tomorrow morning. Well, I should pray really hard. I should make a a vow and a commitment because that's not what they're doing. They're living their lives. They're living their lives, and then there's a separation that happens. And by the basis of the way they live their lives, he separates the sheep from the goats. The nature of the people are just different. They're both surprised because they both didn't realize that their ordinary everyday lives were being examined and judged, that they'd be held accountable for it. And this is because they are doing to Jesus's brothers, the weak and vulnerable, sick, hungry, thirsty, what they would just naturally do out of the overflow of who they are. So, What we can take away from this is that Jesus is telling us a story that what you and I do and what you don't do, both of which have heaven and hell hanging in the balance, are related to the kind of person you are. Who are you? And what you do and you don't do is going to flow naturally out of that heart. So the message of the Bible is not, here's a bunch of rules, obey the rules, and if you do enough good ones, then you go to go to heaven. And if you don't do enough of these rules, then you're going to go to hell. It's not learn a bunch of Bible verses and make sure you know how to say the the right prayer the right way. Be sincere. The message of the Bible is this. God, the judge, ruler, king over all the creation, he created all of us to reflect and rule his image to be stewards of creation. And he gave us a task right from the first page of the Bible 
Have dominion, rule over, be fruitful, multiply the face of the earth, the image of God. Let's call this task the human project. Humans had the option to follow God's character, his ways, be just like him from inside and out. And as we know, it only took two chapters for that whole thing to be wiped off the table as humans took the wrong path, as they screwed up the human project. And no matter how many times humans tried, even if in Genesis chapter 6, even if God said, look, let's just start all over and let's get the very best, most righteous human beings, let's get rid of everyone else and let's start over with a new human, humans were still the problem as soon as they got out of that boat, that ark that Noah and his family was in. So God has two options. He could just get rid of all humans and then that would solve the problem. But then that would get rid of the human project. Or there's another solution. He could create a new kind of human. He could get humans back on track. And sure enough, that's what he does. The human project of reflecting God's image and ruling and having dominion over all the face of the earth, that is rescued when God sent his son Jesus to be the first of a new creation, of a new humanity, of a second start over like a new Adam. He sent his Holy Spirit through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand and then say, I'm going to put my spirit within you to get humans back on track. The Bible story is not, pray a prayer and God will forgive you of all of your sins and then you will go to heaven. Period. Just say some prayer. That doesn't get people to heaven. That's not what it's about in the first place. In fact, the whole picture is painted wrong when you ask the question that way. It's not even about going to heaven. It's about God bringing heaven to earth and restoring what was in the Garden of Eden, where God and man dwell together. This is one of the reasons why I use the illustration. A lot of people think that the gospel is the diving board of the swimming pool. You get on the diving board, and then you jump off, and then you enjoy life in the pool. And the gospel is just the diving board that gets you in. No! The gospel is the pool. You, you swim in it. You are saturated with it every day. This is why we as a church take the Lord's Supper every week. This is why I want to remind you of the gospel every week. You need saving today. You need saving tomorrow morning. Not just because you sinned last night, but because you might go off on the wrong track. Let's, let's reorient our minds to the work of God in Christ. And let's do that with a gift that God's giving us. Not because we're trying with our mustered up efforts. We're not calculating and thinking, well, how many sins did you do? Well, let's make sure your communion cup's big enough because you did a lot of sinning last night. Like, that system is not in here. It's not in all of Matthew. It's not in Matthew 25. It's because of who you are. He's assuming that you're a kind of person that loves his people. And on the basis of that, there is a judgment. But that love, my friend, it will not be something that you have to stress and worry and fret over. Oh, am I going to do enough? He's going to do it through you as a gift of his spirit. God will judge us for what we do and what we do not do. 
We do not have to read Romans 2 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 or Matthew 25 and be like, well, guys, it sounds like God's going to judge us by what we do and don't do. But really, he's going to judge us on the basis of Jesus. Those are not at odds. The Bible's not in contradiction in that way. He is going to judge you on the basis of Jesus doing a new work in you, which leads to good fruit. It's a seed that gets planted. And when the judgment and separation of the sheep and goats happens, it's like, you'll know a tree by its fruits. There's a tree that bears good fruit, and there's a tree that bears bad fruit. It's the same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you a part of the new creation where he saves you by his gift of grace, not on the basis of your works, so that beforehand, before the foundation of the world, did you see that in our text? Before the foundation of the world, he had good works prepared in advance for you to do. The good works are part of the gift. And therefore, no one can boast. And no one can think, oh, well, I deserved this. God, why should you let me into your heaven? Because I'm really, really good. Your natural impulse should be, because I'm a horrible sinner, but Jesus has saved me and given me his spirit within me. And now I love you, God. How about that? It was all a gift. This is why last week we sang this song. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. Now, Many of you come from traditions that are non-denominational or Baptist in this room. That's fine. But you need to know that your tradition has typically sung this song. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Then with this chorus. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. You ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that little refrain. I will arise and go to Jesus. Well, only a few of you. Well, that's too bad. Sing more hymns, friends. <laughs> that's not the original song. That song was made in the 19th century when people were obsessed with man's efforts to try and save themselves. Or as we call in the Second Great Awakening, that was the revival of men. In the First Great Awakening, there was a revival of God. And there was a man named Joseph Hart that wrote, Come ye sinners, and what we sang last week was the original version of it. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. And then it doesn't say, I will arise and go to Jesus. It says, he is able. He is able. He is willing doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance and every grace that brings you nigh or near. Even without money. Without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Isn't that so much better than, I will arise and go to Jesus? Come, even without money. Come and buy. I've got nothing. Come. Come, you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. And if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. 
not the righteous, only sinners Jesus came to call. Let not the righteous make you linger. This is the one I, I had this ringing in my head, and I wanted for this moment in the sermon, this verse, let not your conscience make you linger, nor of your fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. All that he requires in the gospel that you will be judged on, he gives you in the gift of the gospel. So let me say it one more time. Do not let your conscience make you linger. Come to Jesus. Don't be daydreaming of all of the fitness that you need. Oh, I should come to Jesus. Well, should I take the Lord's Supper or should I not? Well, should I receive the grace of God or should I not? All the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And don't worry about that. He's going to give you that too. This he gives you. This he gives you. It is his spirit's rising beam. We're almost done the song, so let's just finish it out. Lo, the incarnate, God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. Don't say, I will arise and go to Jesus. Not that that's really that bad, but do you get my point? How much better is this? None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Come, all ye weary, heavy laden, weak, wounded, sick, sore. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus because there is none but Jesus. We come in the name of Jesus because there is no name under heaven by which man must be saved except Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. We come in his name because we have no other hope. Standing in our own righteousness, we are not deserving. So we pray that on the basis of what Christ has done and by the merits of his blood, you would pour out the love of God into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that will cause us to obey your commands, that will bear good fruit, that will lead us to love your brothers and sisters, the weak and the vulnerable. And I pray that you will remove every ounce and trace of self-righteousness and self-worth and efforts to save ourselves. And we will receive the full gift of salvation, including the very good deeds that you will judge us upon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.